right. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, I'm excited to talk uh, to you about Augustine today. He's someone that looms very large in church history. And he's someone that I've uh, got to learn a bit about, both from his writing and from his life, and someone that I've come to really admire. He's also someone who's kind of intimidating to talk about because he is such a big figure. Everyone kind of knows a little bit about him. It was once said that the man who claims to have read all of Augustine is a liar. Uh, he's also had a massive impact on theology. Um, his thoughts have been debated and used by theologians throughout the centuries. Many times the Reformation period has been described as a battle within the mind of Augustine. But his influence goes beyond the church. His work in philosophy has influenced uh, philosophy and philosophers throughout time, um, and particularly within the 20th century. But he's also a great fit for our series, uh, not so much for what he wrote, but for the life he lived and the fact that he wrote about that life. He wrote an account of his early life and his quest for what we might call his purpose, called confessions. In this account, Augustine is quite brutally honest about his own story, but I think he's also inviting us to see himself as part of the bigger story. He has an episode early in his confessions where he recounts an experience where him and his friends um, stole some pears from a local yard. And looking back, the thing that bothers Augustine the most about it is that he wasn't even hungry. He didn't need the pears. They ended up feeding them to some pigs. But he just did it for doing it, for just being bad. And we might see that as maybe a little strange to so many years later be focused on stealing some fruit as a kid. But Augustine ties this experience in with the fall both by describing the fruit and also his pride that is at work in, in this act. He is owning the sin as his own. The sin and, and his sin nature are not just something that he accepts passively, but something that he is participating in. By doing this, I think he is also inviting us in to, to see him as, and his story as something bigger something that we can take part in. This idea of Augustine as our contemporary, I think is very well laid out in James K. Smith's recent book, On the Road with St. Augustine. In there he talks about the idea of story and says that as much as we're all unique and have unique stories and challenges, there's much about all of us that is the same. Smith points out that this is common in AA circles that hearing your own story in someone else is comforting. And having someone else affirm that you are not the only one to experience what you're going through is freeing. C.S. Lewis commented that this is how friendships are made. He wrote, friendship is born at the moment when one man says to another, what, you too? I thought I was only, the only one. I think that Augustine is suggesting to us that this can be true of the hard lessons, too. He fashions himself here like Adam and Eve, elsewhere like the prodigal son, and I think he invites us to picture ourselves in him. So, who is he? 
Well, he was born in North Africa in 354 AD in the town of Thagast, which today would be Zouk Araz in Algeria. You can see it's that little red dot right on the Algerian-Tunisian border, about 45 miles from the ocean. His mother, Monica, was a devout Christian, while his father, Patrick, only converted shortly before his death. At this point, Christianity was accepted and widespread within the Roman Empire, and northern Africa was somewhat of a hot spot. But he rejects this faith, and as we said, his life is, is not all that unusual, and we could see it maybe playing out today. His parents were ambitious for him, uh, but it's something he only really appreciated later. He comments that early on he um, didn't really appreciate or like school all that much. And as he said, he didn't find the faith of his mother appealing, but instead sought affirmation early on among his friends. He describes himself as a rebellious boy, although what he describes is a desire to fit in with the cool crowd, I might call it. He looks at the lives of others and envies them, and when they boasted about their exploits, he wanted to feel like he fit in. He wrote, I went deeper into vice, into vice to avoid being despised, and when there was no act by admitting to which I could rival my depraved companions, I used to pretend I had done things I had not done at all, so that my innocence should not lead my companions to scorn my lack of courage, and least my chastity be taken as a mark of inferiority. The story he is telling in his confessions is not just about a desire to fit in, but it's also about his search for meaning. But he, he kind of spoils the plot early on when he writes that you stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until it rests in you. This restlessness is what would define much of Augustine's early life as he would try to find his purpose and fulfillment through his career, relationships, religion, and philosophy. The one thing that he is sure of early on is that the answer is not in the Christianity of his mother. He describes reading the Old Testament and finding it unengaging. He's put off by the polygamy found there and is particularly troubled by the problem of evil. The if, if God is good, then, then why all of this? Why evil? Why can't he stop it? This restlessness is given free reign in what we might call Augustine's college years. At about 17 or 18, Augustine moves to Carthage to again go to school and will later teach in that city as well. Carthage was kind of the main, main hub, main area um, where he lived. And there was a place where he could explore the best of what culture had to offer. He opens this chapter in his confessions by saying, I came to Carthage and all around me hissed a cauldron of illicit loves. And yet I had never been in love and I longed to love. I sought an object for my love. I was in love with love and I hated safety and a path free of snares. For Augustine, love is what we're all about. Disordered loves he will say later in his life, is what makes him unsatisfied and leads him astray. But at this point, like the prodigal son who first arrives in the city, 
He does not realize it, but is taken up with his passions. He explores what the city has to offer. He is enamored by the theater and taken up with performances there. He shifts the focus of his career from law to rhetoric, and a passion for wisdom and philosophy is unlocked in him. Studying rhetoric and then teaching rhetoric was a unique position in Augustine's time. It was a highly estimated skill, and to be able to speak well and persuasively, it was what richer, ambitious fathers would want their sons to learn, and by mastering it, it would open up great doors of possibility to the very highest centers of power. Augustine pursued it not just because of his love of the subject, but out of a desire to be well-known, respected, and well-liked. In Carthage, he also found a love of a sort. He began a relationship with a woman who is often referred to as his concubine, but could be seen as something of a living girlfriend. This type of relationship was fairly normal for his time. She was someone who he would not have wanted to marry because she was not of the appropriate social standing. And marriages for someone like Augustine, who was ambitious, um, would need to be something that could advance his career. So in the meantime, having a sexual companion was a normal practice. And while they didn't intend to have children, fairly early on, they did have a son. Augustine was also exploring the deeper things of life and became at this time a Manichaean. Manichaeanism was somewhat of a popular but also subversive religion. It was seen as dangerous by both Christians and pagans. It also shared some of the same critiques of Christianity that Augustine had. Manichaeans believed that the Bible must be read literally. So when it speaks of God's hand or his arm, they believed that it must mean that the Bible was talking about God's actual physical body, which seemed ridiculous. They also proposed the same questions regarding evil that Augustine was struggling with. Speaking later, Augustine writes, this is the problem with this, the problem of evil, with which the Manichaeans think they can sweep the board just by posing it, as if posing an awkward question meant knowing anything. If that were only the case, there would have been nobody more knowledgeable than myself. Manichaeanism was the cool, edgy, sophisticated religion, everything that Christianity wasn't, and exactly the type of thing that a 20-something Augustine was looking for. Eventually, Augustine would tire of Carthage and look to the bigger cities to further his ambition. He would move to Rome. This would maybe be the equivalent of moving from Calgary to Toronto or New York. He moved there to further his opportunity, but also in hopes of finding better students. He said that he found the students in Carthage too rowdy. Yet this experience would disappoint him. He began it by having to trick his mother into not following him, and then after arriving, he became very ill. The students were, again, disappointing to him. While they were better behaved, they had a habit of dropping his class just before their bill was due and then switching to another teacher. But he soon would be given another opportunity. Through his connections in the Manichaeans, he was able to be appointed as a professor of rhetoric for the city of Milan. Now, Milan was the imperial city at this point, so this appointment was a big deal. It meant 
that he would be able to give speeches on behalf of important politicians and even the emperor. It was really everything that he wanted, but he was dissatisfied. By this point, he had become disenchanted by Manichaeanism and become depressed in his search for truth. In fact, he writes, I had lost all hope of discovering the truth. His restlessness had now begun to quiet down into despair. But in Milan, he also meets Ambrose. Ambrose was the bishop of Milan and a well-known and respected Christian leader and preacher. So, of course, Augustine had to go and see for himself if he was worthy of the accolades he received as a speaker. He was initially drawn to Ambrose because of the kindness he showed Augustine. But gradually, he became to appreciate more and more Ambrose as a thinker and what he was saying in his sermons. He realized that many of the objections he held against the Bible previously were unfounded. He began to discover the Christian faith again, now through the lens of his past disappointments, and it seemed more attractive. The goals he had set for himself, he had achieved, but they left him wanting. He writes, saying to God, I aspired to honors, money, marriage, and you laughed at me. In those ambitions, I suffered the bitterest difficulties. In a somewhat ironic twist, Ambrose also complimented Monica, Augustine's mother who had now followed him to Milan. Monica, whose faith would have seemed so backwards and unsophisticated to a young Augustine, was now being praised for it by this great man. Augustine was now in his early 30s, and and had found all else he tried wanting. And he began to see in Christ, the Christian faith what he was looking for, but he couldn't bring himself to convert. He did not fight so much as just lack the will. He described himself as knowing what he should do, but not being able to do it. The way he describes it is a bit like when you know that you need to get up off the couch or out of bed, but you just can't quite do it yet. His... His problem was that he knew what he needed, but he was not ready to give up his old life. While he had found it unfulfilling, I think it was also comfortable. At this point, he had also arranged a marriage which had meant breaking it off with his concubine girlfriend. He felt that should he become a Christian, he would need to be chaste. But he also desired to marry, not so much out of love, but out of a desire for sexual gratification. He cries out to God, make me chaste, but not yet. This anxiety that he was feeling comes to a peak one day. He has been studying more and more and reading about great Christians of the past and then goes out into his garden and brings scripture with him. While he is in the midst of this despair, he heard, hears a child's voice calling, Tola Lege, take up and read. Taking it as a command, he picks up Paul's writings that he had with him, and opening it, reads Romans 13, 13 to 14. Not in riots and drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lusts. He then writes, I wished... I, ne I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, with the last words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. 
all the shadows of doubt were dispelled. Augustine's story doesn't end here. He spends more time reflecting with his friends and mother, um, goes for rest out in the countryside, and then returns to Milan and is baptized by Ambrose along with his close friend and son. Fairly soon after this, his mother will die, and he returns back to Africa and will eventually become famous as the Bishop of Hippo, a city that's about 60 miles from Thagast, where he was born. But we can see now the culmination, or at least the beginning, of Augustine's heart finally coming to rest in God. His struggle with the problem of evil doesn't just go away, but he learns to trust in a loving God who, is, who has sent his son to die on the cross. I think that Augustine is a good guide for us because I think this feeling of restlessness is a common one. A desire to get out and explore what the world has to offer, to make a name for yourself, to be significant, to be free. I think that this is a powerful image in our culture. And maybe nobody presents it better than Disney. So I have three young daughters and so over the last number of years, I've watched a lot of Disney movies. One that recently watched is Moana. And I think the, the message in it is typical of a lot of Disney movies in general. Moana is the daughter of the village chief. And this village is on an island. And nobody leaves the island because they have everything they need there. So no one ventures out beyond the lagoon. But Moana always has this desire to get out and do something. But she is told no. But in, near the beginning of the movie, Moana's grandmother, who's a bit of a free spirit, tells her that if she has a voice inside her telling her to do something, that she needs to follow it. And she says, that voice inside you is who you are. And you need to follow who you are lesson is to, to be fulfilled. And if you haven't seen it, everything she does and everything kind of works out, not to give it all away. Hollywood's maybe answer to, to this it, um, comes in a number of ways, but I, one of my favorites is um, a movie that I usually watch at Christmas time called It's a Wonderful Life. And I will kind of spoil this one, but it came out about 70 years ago, so you, you had a chance. In this story, George Bailey has similar aspirations. He's living in a small town, but he, he wants to get out. He wants to do big things. He wants to travel. He wants to build things. He wants this big life, and certainly not in, in his hometown. But it never ends up happening. And every time he's given the opportunity to leave, he usually gives it up in deference to someone else or someone else's needs. Near the end of the movie, he is um, distraught because of a loss of money at his um, building and loan kind of bank where they would loan money for people that they could build their houses. And he's contemplating ending his life. But an angel comes and shows him the world with if he had never existed. And it's, it's a dark picture. And he, what he comes to realize is that um, 
well, that he had a wonderful life. And it's largely because of the impact he had and the friends that he made. There's a line at the end that says, um, no one who has friends is really poor, or something like that. But that's not really the point either. The point of Augustine's story isn't that he should have just never left North Africa, but that instead he's seeking after something that would not fulfill him. And even if those things are maybe seem better or than others to us, even as Christians, Augustine is saying that anything short of God is going to ultimately not fulfill us, leave us unsatisfied. That if our love is disordered, that we'll be restless. Going back to um, Smith, he writes in his book about freedom and the type of freedom that Augustine is trying to find and that I think we often try to look at. And he gives an analogy of swimming in an above-ground pool and that you're, you're swimming and you keep bumping into the edge. And every time you do, you wish that it could be a bit bigger because this, the boundaries of the pool are impeding your freedom. But if you actually succeed in breaking down those walls, you'll find out that you really haven't gained anything. The, the water dissipates and the, you have a sense of freedom, but it's not what you wanted. The idea here is that, what we, that we are a bad guide for our own freedom. This idea that putting God first is something that you've probably heard before. But maybe not, but maybe you haven't always found it convincing. We hear people say it, but we kind of want to check it out for ourselves. We mistrust the experiences of others and want to find out for ourselves. Augustine is saying to us, don't. I did it. I tried all this. I regret it. And it failed me. I tried it all out, but I only found my home when I found my orientation and my love in God. Saying that when we look only to after our own interests and our own ideas of freedom, however good or lofty those might be, whether those be chasing some dream out there or living in the same town that you've lived all your life, that it will ultimately disappoint if it's purely focused on yourself and not on God. The lesson is that we will always disappoint ourselves, but God won't. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and thank you for the opportunity to look back at um, one of your servants and to see in his life, um, hopefully something that we can learn from, that while Augustine ran away from you, that you were never far from him, and that eventually he would find his rest and significance and purpose in you. Pray that as, as we go through our lives as well, that we would, we would resist the urge to follow our own intentions, even our own dreams, if they are not coming from you, but that we would align ourselves with you 
and that you would give us peace and purpose and contentment in you. Thank you again for this day and this time we were able to spend together. We ask that you'd watch us and keep us safe and well throughout this day. In Jesus' name, amen.